Amen. If you've got elementary age kids, we'd love them to be part of our Vine Kids time going right out this side door, following the Kenworthy Children's. Again, if you missed it, well, you weren't here, we made announcements. We want to remind you or just tell you how grateful we are. If you are here for the first time, we'd just really blessed to have you. And so we'd love for you to take a moment, fill out that guest card, let us know that you were here. We'd love to follow up with you and tell you how you can get involved or just more information about our church. So we are really, really, really honored that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. And we don't say that lightly. We really are, are blessed to have you. Um, you're actually coming in on the tail end of something we began 33 weeks ago. So... Um, I say 33 weeks ago, kind of loosely. It's 33 weeks into the series, but we've skipped some weeks here and there. We've taken some time off. In fact, the last time we've been in the book of Hebrews was November the 7th. So it's been a minute since we've been here. But we started this journey a year or so ago, and we've been kind of walking through from an expository kind of way the entire text of the book of Hebrews, from verse 1 to the end of chapter 12. We've looked at every verse and nuance. It's an incredibly deep, theologically rich, important book. It's very powerfully laid out as a great reminder of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And so from top to bottom, the letter is a, uh, it's an attempt to remind Jewish believers not to return to an old way of life, but that Jesus is in fact better and holds all things together. And so just by way of a, of a brief little recap to catch us up to speed, for those of you that haven't been here or maybe it's just been a little while, um, I'm going to go over just a couple of quick things that will get us back on our movement to think about Hebrews again in terms of its book. And then we've got one last chapter, four or five weeks, and then we will be jumping into something new. But we're picking this up at the very tail end of this, what really is a sermon more than anything. It's not so much a book. Hebrews is not written like a classical letter. It's written more as a message. So most scholars believe that it was probably articulated in one sitting to a pretty large audience of people. And the person that spoke it or preached it was probably a very well-educated order. And so a lot of people have wondered, who wrote the book of Hebrews? We actually don't know. From about 400 to about 1600 AD, it was attested to Paul. In fact, it was even called the Pauline Epistle to the Hebrews. But most scholars believe that Paul didn't write it, mainly because it doesn't sound like Paul. It doesn't use any of his same kind of uh, the kind of the nuanced way Paul writes, and in, in verse or chapter two, verse three, it makes a, a comment about someone that has not encountered Jesus, spent time with Jesus, or had any special revelation, which of course would take Paul out of the picture. Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then of course had this divine revelation in which Jesus essentially just downloaded to him all these incredible, deep theological things in which Paul used to write his letters. So pretty much takes Paul out of the writing, which really leaves in scholarship two more people: Barnabas and a guy named Apollos. Barnabas was the guy that accompanied uh, Paul on his first missionary journey, commissioned by uh, the church in Acts chapter 13. Um, that could definitely be one of the, the, the people that wrote it. But most people believe that it was probably Apollos. Apollos is an Alexandrian Jew. He's incredibly smart. He's a great speaker. We learned all these things. He spent time with uh, Paul in Corinth. And so most people believe that it was probably written by him, but no one really knows. And it just kind of leaves some of the deep mystery of the book. Because what it does, it removes the focus of the author and onto what the author is saying or what our speaker is saying. And from top to bottom, the book is really, or the letter uh, message is really about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Because the Jews at the time were facing a ton of pressure. They were facing a ton of pressure from family members and culture to return to an old way of life. Now, these are Jews that have given their life to Jesus. They had basically said, no, we are, are following Jesus. We believe that he is the Messiah, the one that was sent. We've given our life to him. We believe in him as our Lord and Savior. We are following Jesus. And they are getting all kinds of external pressure from family and friends to do one of two things. One, to return to Judaism. To just give that Christianity stuff up. Jesus was a fraud. Return to the way of life. Keep the law. Return to the way that Moses had intended and get back in line with cultural Judaism. Right? That was the first pressure. The second pressure they were facing was to Judaize the gospel, which essentially is the idea that, yes, you can believe in Jesus and follow Christ. However, you still have to keep all the sort of religious covenants and acts of Jewish law. So you had to do Jesus and all the abiding of the law. So Jesus wasn't actually sufficient for your salvation. You had to do all the things the law required. And uh, in fact, Paul spends a, a lot of his letters writing against the heretical kind of side of uh, the Judaizers that were, that were teaching that. And it's a, a big heresy because the truth is, is that Jesus is sufficient completely and totally. It's not Jesus and anything. It is 
perfectly Christ. And so if you add anything or need anything to be saved, then you're looking at heresy. And so our, our speaker, our author, is basically writing against or preaching against these two things. He's saying, listen, you are got a lot of pressure to return to an old way of life, but Jesus is better. And he spends the majority of the book explaining why Jesus is better than the law, better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than all these things, and talking about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is, in fact, better than all. And in him, all things tightly hold together. And it's very theologically deep, and it's methodically written out. And it's got this intense depth to it that we've explored at times, one verse at a time even, trying to unpack the depth and the wealth that's there. It's almost like a a rescuing voice in a wilderness of heresy, right? It's just a reminder that Jesus is all you need. And for us in the, in the contemporary church, it's a powerful message because we, like the Jews, are being faced with a lot of other voices. Now, they may not be, be calling us to return to a, another religious life, but they're calling us, telling us that there are other things in this world that can compare to Jesus, that can satisfy the soul. That if we just can get to this place financially or in our work goals or we can just get to these things or have these things, then somehow we will be somewhat satisfied. And so we spend a lot of time in our life pursuing the worldly side of things. And Hebrews is actually that voice that says, Jesus is all, he is enough, he is fully our hope, and without him, you will have literally nothing. And so the voice is essentially, Jesus is all that you need. That's the whole press of the book of Hebrews. And so if you've missed any of those, a lot of them are up on the website. We'd love for you to go back and take a look, especially if you just want to study through it. It's a a really great, in-depth, powerful, really powerful book. But chapter 10, things change a little bit, and we go away from the deep theological and into the practical. It's almost like he's wrapping up this sermon. He's going, okay, we got to get out of here. we got a potluck deal happening after this. So I want to get to some stuff. What are you going to take away, right? i got to get to the takeaway. So when you're writing sermons and when you're putting these things together, you you kind of build this intro, and then you get into the meat of the text, and then it's like the, what are we walking away with? And that's kind of where he landed in chapter 10, is what are the practical sides of this? And he kind of laid out some very practical things about how we live as followers of Christ. And then we get to chapter 13, where we are today. And we're going to see him almost throw in a few last key important things that he doesn't want to miss before we leave. And they're going to get very specific and very practical in terms of how we live the Christian life. And they're going to address things like love and community. They're going to address marriage. They're going to address money. And they're going to address leadership. Because he's like, i got to get these things in there before we close out because I need you to know how important they are. And so as we wrap up this book over the next five weeks or so, we're going to look at those things individually and, and identify why they're so important to our author that he squeezes them in there at the end of 13 to make sure we hear them and how we as followers of Christ need to adjust and adapt our lives to live, as he says in verse 15, a sacrifice of praise when it comes to things like community, marriage, money, and leadership. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of those pieces, and that's the idea of community and how we're called to love and live inside the context of the community of believers. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in the first three verses, and um, then we'll just kind of go from there. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we will dive into it together. Lord, I know that's a lot of words and a lot of background to get us to a place where we just are standing back on the threshold of this incredible, incredible book. Lord, we are standing on this this beautiful picture of both deep theological and important things that run through our Christian life and the practical side of how we live those things out. Theology and practice are the two great parts of what it means to follow you, that we we can't just walk how we want to walk. Good theology keeps us from bad theology. But we're also called to live that theology out. We can't just live in our heads. We can't just say we know things about the nature of God and not allow them into our lives or change how we live. And so both the theological and the practical are married together to make the Christian life, that we live the way we live because of the things that we believe about who God is. Theology impacts who we are and how we live, and therefore, Lord, those things are intricately connected. And how we live actually says a lot about what we truly believe about who you are. As we come to a close in this book over the next few weeks, I pray that we would examine some, some specific areas in our life, some more difficult than others, some hard to hear. Um, Lord, some important to some of us and maybe less important to others, but all equally important to the community. That we would let you press these things on our heart, that you would teach us something new, uh, Lord, and that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and through the person of Jesus Christ. Take a moment in your heart before we kind of dive into the word this morning and just 
ask the Lord to teach you. Some very familiar texts we've actually looked at and explored before. Um, but looking at it in a different light this morning, ask the Lord to teach your heart something new. Just whisper that in your soul before we dive into the word this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you. We do this each week for those of you that are with us for the first time. We, we want to be a church that's committed to praying for the people around us. And so we take a few moments and we just pray for the people around us. Maybe we know them, maybe we don't. Maybe they're friends that brought us here. Uh, maybe it's our spouse or our ch- children. <clears throat> we just pray for them. We want to be a church that cares about the spiritual growth of the people around us and that everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning here is not about you. And so be in the habit of praying for other people. Just take a moment and pray for the person around you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would comfort their soul, he would convict them, whatever it is. Just pray for the people around you. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. And so, God, we ask that you would teach us through your word this morning, that you would take the familiar, the familiar and you would make it new, that you would press conviction and encouragement upon our heart at the same time. Lord, that we could both walk away convicted of things we need to be and do differently, but at the same time encouraged by the grace that you continue to show us as people who have... Uh, bailed, have fallen, have failed, have tripped, have fallen down, have made terrible choices, have chosen the world over you, all those things that we've done in sin, Lord, yet you continue to show us grace to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning as we talk about what it would look like if the church, the true church, loved in such a way that it would change the world around us. Lord, we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, chapter 13 is not a, it's not a collection of like kind of last minute thoughts. It's very much thought out in terms of the book, but there's a bunch of things squeezed in there as if he's getting to the end and he just wants to make sure that he hits on them. And he just gets to a place where he's like, oh yeah, I want to make sure that I, I, I mention this to you. And you've got to remember that if this is a sermon, then it falls pretty, it falls importantly on the ears of people and not so much on the idea that he was expelling it all out in terms of words and letters, but that he was, he was saying, oh yeah, and listen, like how you guys live together matters, right? Because he's speaking to a group of gathered Jewish believers that are, are really wrestling with the fact that there's a lot of pressure on the outside to leave this community and join another one. And so the value of community in the book of Hebrews is really important. There probably is no kind of more difficultly persecuted group of people than Hebrew Christians. Um, Those Christians were ostracized by pretty much all of Greek culture. They were ostracized by all of Jewish culture. They literally only had themselves. And so uh, more so than any other group of banded together believers, the Jewish Christians probably were the most alone. And so as he's riding to this group of believers, he stops at the end of 12, beginning 13, and he just says, I want to remind you how to love each other because it's going to matter in the days that are coming. And our author knows that what's unfolding in front of them is some deep and real persecution that's coming. And they're going to face some incredibly difficult things together. And so he's going to remind them how to love as part of this community. And so we're going to look at the first three verses this morning and then break those up just a little bit. He says this, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who were in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. So he launches into this closing section with this powerful reminder, and he starts with this idea of love, which shouldn't be a surprise to us. If you're familiar with Scripture at all, the, uh, the idea, the theme of the New Testament is really this sort of interaction about how Jesus loves us and how that should change the way that we love the world around us, right? So it it's begins with this idea that God loved us first, demonstrated what that looked like, and there's followers of Christ. We're called to replicate that love to the world. And so when he says, listen, keep on loving each other as brothers, he's stepping on commands that Jesus had actually already given. 
And those of you may remember, we've talked about this passage before, but in John chapter 13, there's this really significant moment where Jesus is gathered on the last, essentially, night of his life as a free person. The next day he'd be sentenced and then tried and then crucified and killed. But he's gathered his disciples, all 12 of them. This is before Judas had yet to actually take off, leave the table and betray him. They're all gathered together. They had had this meal, and Jesus stands up, and he takes off his outer garments, cloak or his robe or whatever it is, and he, he wraps a towel around his waist. And you remember the story, right? He goes along to each of these disciples, and he begins to wash their feet, scrubbing the dirt and filth and manure and all the stuff in the streets off their feet as a symbolic gesture both physically and spiritually, of what is to come, right? And he stands up after he's done this, and he looks at all these disciples, and he says this. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. So you must love one another. So he has this kind of laid out in John 13, where he looks at the disciples, and he says, I'm going to give you a new command. And Jesus had the authority to give new commands, because Jesus is himself God, and therefore speaks with the authority of God, and can be the one that gives new commands. So he's not doing away with the Ten Commandments. He's not doing away with the other Old Testament commandments or commandments that are out there. He's basically saying, I'm adding a new one. And the new one's not that new in terms of what it tells us to do, right? Leviticus 19 tells us to love each other. But the newness is in terms of how we go about loving. And he says, this new command I give you is this, love one another, and the kicker is, as I have loved you. And Jesus loved these disciples with deep intention, right? Deep intention. And he loved them with deep sacrifice. In fact, so much so that he would ultimately go to the cross with love for them and for humanity that he deeply loved people in this really raw, sacrificial, and intentional way. And he tells the disciples, this is how you're called to love each other. And he doesn't say, this is how you're called to go and love the world, right? There's an implication there that we are called to love the world and love the people in it. But the direct command in that moment is love each other. All of you here gathered, these 12, love each other as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love those disciples? I mean, deeply. He'd walk through the Jane countryside, he'd take things that they were saying and he'd, he'd correct them and he'd teach them and he'd, he'd take their sort of misguided judgments and their overzealous ideas and he'd fill it with grace and he'd love them and care for them and teach them and instruct them and then ultimately would pay a price when they would all abandon and run and bail on him in just a few hours from now and he would die for them. But he says, listen, for how I loved you, I want you to love each other. By this, this, this is how all people will know you're my disciples. So they're not going to know your followers of mine by your declarations, by the banners that you have, by the club you're involved with, by the books that you write. They're going to know that you follow me by how the 12 of you treat each other. This is really fascinating to me because the idea here is simple. The greatest evangelistic tool the church has is not necessarily our podcasts, our books, all of those things. The greatest evangelistic tool the church has is how its people love its people. Because it has to be different than the world, right? Because if we love each other the way that Christ loved us, that's different than how the love of the world works. It's intentional, sacrificial, it's grace-filled. And so he's building this idea upon a command that Jesus has already made. So I want to remind you, right, to keep on loving each other as brothers. And what essentially were the disciples? Well, they were brothers. Jesus actually calls them that, friends and brothers. So the first call that we have as a community, and as he gives this Hebrew gathering, is love like family. Now, any of you that have had family, which is all of us, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, stepbrothers, whatever they are, you know that that is not an easy task, right? Loving his family is really actually hard. Because loving his family means that we take the good with the bad, the ups with the downs, the difficulties with the struggles. We take the abandonment with grace. We take the conflict with a heartbeat for resolution. We take offense with forgiveness. All these things are wrapped in this together. If I think about my own relationship with my brother, I see the complexities of this played out. We were two years apart. We competed in everything. We fought like crazy, but we were best friends. We did everything together until it turned violent, and it always turned violent. I don't know how my mom did it. Like, we literally went through walls 
But in the same breath, we would play together, we'd fight for each other, we'd create games together. He one time broke a cribbage board, which is an old gentleman's card game, over my head, like literally. Because I said it was a seven and he said it was an eight. I taught him about the no, the, the, the no interest self-loan to yourself and monopoly, which is a great move for the older brother. No, that's okay. The bank loans me money with no interest to myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's right here in the rules, right here. So that's 500 for me, 500 for me. Five, uh, you don't get any. So, I mean, we did this, right? And then it turned violent. And we walked through all kinds of things in life together, right? We walked through the challenges when our parents would fight. You know, because my family, probably like yours, had moments where our parents struggled or they fought or we could hear them and come in our room and we'd wander together and then everything would go back to normal. And, you know, we wandered through the times where he would have a breakup or he would have a whatever. We wanted the difficulty and the challenge. I remember when our dad died, we were young. I was 21, he was 19. Walking through the idea of closing out a business together. The fights that we've had, the challenges. For 13 years, I prayed that he would come to know Christ. For 13 years, walked with him through those questions and the difficulties. We'll get to a place now where I look back on all those years, and outside of my wife, there's probably no safer person in my life, right? We still don't see eye to eye on a bunch of things. We still, when we go on family vacations, we'll still fight about the ridiculous, right? We do it all the time. But without a shadow of a doubt in there, I would die without a second thought for him. I would do anything. He could come to me with the greatest grievance in the world and I would forgive him. I'd be frustrated like crazy. I might punch him in the throat, but we would be okay. Because loving like family is that picture. The disciples weren't always going to get along. In fact, they didn't. They had quarrels all the time. They would argue over ridiculous things like who gets to sit next to Jesus in heaven. Like these are the things my brother and I would fight about. I'm shotgun. You're not shotgun. You called it last time. We did all of those things. Who's riding shotgun in heaven? They're arguing over those things. Family's hard, right? But family can be really, really beautiful because family is loyal and true. And family will say things that the world won't say. It'll remind you who you are. It'll keep you humble. But all in the same time, it will love with this deep forgiveness. And a lot of us have fractured relationships, and we've allowed worldly principles to infect our idea of loving like family. We have held on to grudges and resentment and regret. We've allowed uh, anger from our parents or from our siblings to infiltrate our hearts, and we live with a lot of distaste and distrust. But at its core, the idea is simple. Love each other as brothers. Because there's really no other picture in Scripture that has this complexity of how the church is called to love each other. Because ultimately that's what we are. As we surrender our life to Jesus, we become co-heirs to the throne of God. Therefore, we are part of the kingdom of God and the family of God. And if we're part of the family of God, then that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a reason that Scripture uses these terms. And Paul is constantly calling people brothers who are not actually his flesh and blood. He's calling them brothers because they have been grafted into this bigger family. And it's why throughout all of Christian history, believers have addressed each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what our authors are reminding us at is, is that we are called to love each other. Keep on loving each other as family. Because some of those gathered in that Hebrew circle right there that were listening to this great sermon, they were, they were thinking about walking away. They were getting a lot of pressure from mom or dad or from the family to leave this idea of Christianity and return to Judaism. And he's saying, listen, remember to love his family. Not all of you are going to make perfect decisions. Love really well with intention and sacrifice and grace. Our Western church, everything in the church has really just become about me. It's all about me. What do you have for me or my family or what are you offering us? Or what do we come in? Are we entertained? Are we engaged? All of these things revolve around me. And, and the goal of the Western church for the most part is to, to meet the seeker where they are and introduce them to Christ and have them return and all those kind of things, which aren't inherently bad, but they're all driven for the individual. Everything is about the guest or about this or making sure that we meet that person. And very rarely is our call to say, you know, part of the I call the entire church is that it's not about you, actually at all. It's completely and totally about Christ first and the people around you after that. You're somewhere way down on the list. We don't live that way, right? So what Paul or what our author's saying, Paulos or whoever it may be, is 
if you're going to be involved in community, like real community, and you're not just going to be an attender at a church somewhere, if you're going to be involved, keep on loving his family. In other words, don't give up on the people around you. And learn to know them like you know your brothers and sisters. You know how long it took my brother and I to develop the relationship that we have? It's taken 39 years. Because that's how old I am. 39 years, right? <laughs> it's taken years and years and years of failures and struggles and ups and downs and all kinds of things. It doesn't happen overnight. Developing deep relationships with people means that you put yourself in places where those relationships are going to develop. All right? You share with them the things that you may not share with other people. You share with your community of believers struggles that you're having at work or hard times that you're walking through because you know the people around you won't leave you nor forsake you. They will not bail on you, especially when you tell them hard things. My brother at any moment in time could come to me and say, my wife and I, Treb, we're struggling. I need your help or I need you to pray for us. And you know my first move is not to judge and be like, how could y'all struggle? Like what is wrong with you? My first move is to say, man, I love you. Like absolutely, what can we do? That's what family looks like. But most of us are afraid that when we share those things with the church, we get the latter, right? We get the, the judgment, the pieces. But developing family life means vulnerability, intentionality. So he says, listen, keep on loving as family. So keep on loving each other as brothers. Second thing he says in verse 2 is he says this. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Do not forget... So in the context of loving as community and each other, don't forget, this also is not just about all of you here. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have actually entertained angels. And what does that really mean? Well, it could be a reference to a whole lot of things. It could be a reference to Abraham in Genesis or, or Manoah or Gideon or even maybe the guys on the road to Emmaus, where these people have had these encounters with a person that turned out to be an angel of the Lord or the guys on the road to Emmaus that turned out to be Jesus himself. Like the idea is you never know who it is you're engaging. Maybe they were sent by the Lord. Maybe it is an angel or maybe it's just somebody that God has placed in your path. He's saying, listen, don't forget to entertain strangers. And here's the key thing. He says, don't forget. Why would he say don't forget? Because it's super easy when we're focused on family to just think about us. It's just about me. And in our culture, we circle our wagons really tightly to the things that we're comfortable with. We get tight with our family. If the pandemic has done anything, it has kind of shrunk our circles of comfort, right? And so we engage with just our life group or engage with just our family or engage with just those that we're closest with. And we engage with the family of God and we're comfortable here and we live here as opposed to out there. And he says, don't forget to forego comfort at times to engage the stranger. Now, I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, we didn't have a lot of things we got now, right? Like we didn't have phone. We had phones, you know, some, my grandma had a rotary one. That was pretty cool. But we didn't have like cell phones. I mean, I didn't, my wife and I were dating in college and we wrote letters to each other. There was no, email came my junior year in college. Like that's how old I am, right? And so we wrote letters. I have a box of letters that I wrote to Meredith that I still have, that she still has, right? I'm sure they're amazing. I was just a poet, right? I was in love. We wrote letters to each other. But one of the things that happened when you're growing up in the 80s was people came by all the time, right? Remember the doorbell would ring and you would freak out and everyone would run to see who it was. And someone would say, hey, we just heard, how are you doing? We were in the neighborhood. Like that was the thing. We were, we were passing by. Or your neighbors would come over. Now when the doorbell rings, the first thing you do is look at each other and you're like, who's, who's that? Because it's either the Amazon guy or no one. Because no one comes over anymore. Because we kind of freak out because the best we do is text each other because we've closed off all these circles of hospitality to only engage those that we're super comfortable with, right? We've got neighborhoods with fences and houses with fences. We have, everything we do is built to keep these layers of people that we don't know or the stranger out. That's why the church is a little bit of an anomaly because it's actually called to deeply engage the stranger. Middle Eastern hospitality was very different than Western culture hospitality. Middle Eastern hospitality was if someone new walked into the village, you invited them literally to come into your house and spend the night with you, right? So that's not really how we live and engage, but you see the call there, right? Like don't forget in your quest, right, to grow as a Christian and engage in love community, in the community, to engage with strangers. 
Now, it's a crazy thing. That Greek word that says strangers right there is actually a word that means strangers. Just literally strangers. It's not a play on words. It is most likely and most definitely the translation, translation for someone you do not know. So what he's actually saying is, don't forget in your context of loving the people you're super comfortable with and loving as the church to entertain people that you don't know. Practice and cultivate biblical hospitality. You know what biblical hospitality is? It's a part of our life that says, nothing I have belongs to me. Nothing. My home, my children, my life, my resources, as a follower of Christ, they all belong to the Lord. And therefore, I get to be hospitable with the things God has blessed me with. So my life and my things belong to him. Therefore, I'm going to practice and cultivate the idea of making it grow and mature, right? Hospitality, which is my house is open to you. My life is open to you. My heart is open to you. Our world is open to you, even the stranger. Now, there's a thousand reasons why I'm telling you don't necessarily just invite all strangers into your home, right? So youngsters listening today, there's a lot of reasons not to do that. Vet somebody first. Ask a couple of people around. Use your instinct, your gut, your feeling that feels wrong, probably is wrong. But also in the same way, if it feels like the Lord's pressing on your heart, open those doors. But it's not just about the person that is a total stranger. It's about thinking differently. It's about opening your eyes to people around you to create relationship with people you don't know yet. And that even happens within the context of community. How many people in this room today would you say that you knew really well? Five? Ten? I guarantee it's not everyone. And we are a small church. We should know each other pretty well. But there are people in here that have been coming since we opened our doors that still don't know each other well enough to be able to name their children. That's tough, right? That's not even knowing like the deepest recesses of your soul. That's just what did you name your kids? So we can't forget, he says, to entertain strangers. And that stranger word is not just the guy or girl wandering here from Kansas City on their way down to San Antonio. It's a stranger that you walk in, walks in the door, and you've never seen them before. How do you entertain them? Hey, we're going out to lunch afterwards. We have a life. We'd love for you to be a part of our world. Like, come over. Let's be intentional with our time. Let's think differently about hospitality. There are two real principles at play, I think, in this context. The first one is that when the church begins to focus on the maintenance of itself, it's when the church begins to die. So when we begin to become inwardly focused on just what's happening here, all that matters is making sure that we're caring for and nurturing and maintaining the institution, right? Which is what's happening around us in a lot of mainline Christianity. We've got to do whatever we can to get people to come, to maintain the institution. We've got bills to pay and buildings, all these kind of things. We begin to die because the church was not created for the maintenance of itself. The church was created to literally be a sent people into the world. Therefore, we don't actually exist for buildings, it's not even part of the diagram that was laid out in Scripture. Those are much, much later concept. The idea is go out there, live out there, right? So the moment we begin the maintenance of ourselves, we begin to die. The second real principle at play there is this sort of idea that we are called to change the world. And we think that evangelism begins with me telling you all the verses in Romans that will get you to know Jesus. But I really do believe the deepest evangelistic tool the church has is how we love each other and the concept of biblical hospitality. When people see other people having true engagements with the Lord and true engagements with each other, they want to be a part of that because it's not what the world offers. And so when someone genuinely invites you into their life or you genuinely invite someone into your home or into your family and they watch you interact differently with how the world interacts, that becomes a very curious thing for the outside world to see. Why do these people not want to destroy each other? Why are they kind and grace-filled, even in moments of discussion and disillusion or frustration? Why do they live and act differently? And why do they invite me continually into this thing? Watching how the church loves and how the church opens its arms and doors to the world is perhaps our greatest evangelistic tool. If you've ever been on the mission field at all, you will understand that biblical hospitality is where the sharing of the gospel actually begins. It does not begin necessarily shouting on a street corner. 
It begins with opening your heart and your life to people to develop relationships that will give you the opportunity to tell them about the God that you love and serve. Hospitality is the front door to evangelism. And therefore, the greatest tool that we have is when we don't focus on ourselves and we open our hearts and lives to the world around us. We have to practice and cultivate biblical hospitality. So these first two principles, love is family, practice and cultivate hospitality, right? This is for the church. And then he says this, last thing. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So he says, listen, a couple other things. You're loving each other's family. I want you focused on also remembering this isn't just about you. Like love and entertain strangers. Practice biblical hospitality. Open your doors and lives and hearts. And he goes, and then there's this other group of people I don't want you to forget about. I want you to remember and love the marginalized. And he says, remember those who are in prison as if you yourselves were prisoners with them. And those that are suffering as if you were suffering alongside of them. And remember, he's not addressing this in terms of go develop a prison outreach ministry. Most likely what our, our author, our preacher is talking about are those Hebrew believers that were now imprisoned because they were facing this incredible and deep and real persecution from both the Roman world and from the Jewish world. And once those people were plucked out of the community, it was really easy to wrap ourselves back up in the community and forget about them. And he's saying, don't forget those that have gone literally to prison before you for their faith in Christ. Don't forget those on the outside and on the margins. And you can put a whole host of people in there. Don't forget those that are mourning, those that are homebound, the widow, the brokenhearted. Don't forget those that can't be here in the physical gathering, right? Don't forget those that fall along the margins. And he goes, in fact, it's not just, oh, we need to remember to pray for them. He said, no, love them as if you were their fellow prisoner. Comfort them as if you were suffering alongside of them. And I find this really remarkable because here's the call here. It's really easy for us to do things for other people. Sign up on a meal train because somebody had a baby. Is that really what our author's talking about? I don't think it is. I think he's actually talking about something much bigger and much deeper and much more powerful, which is if we're remembering those that are marginalized and those that are on the fringes, those that are suffering, and we're remembering them as if we were there with them or suffering alongside them. How would you comfort the person if you were mourning with them? How would you comfort your cellmate if you were imprisoned with them? Right? Would you send them a DoorDash card? No, you'd probably say, we're in this thing together. Like, we'll figure it out. Together, we'll walk through this. Let's, let's pray. Let's, let's ask the Lord to show up. You'd sit alongside them and walk alongside them. This principle became very real to me back in 2011 or 2010, I can't remember. We were in Uganda, and we were planning a church over there, and we were doing an outreach one day into a local Ugandan prison. And prison in other countries, especially third world countries, is obviously very different than prison here. I mean, prison nowhere is. You don't, you don't want to spend a lot of time there. But there it's different. It's, uh, it, it's not taxpayer supported. So you're guaranteed nothing. So the Ugandan prison that we were in was not a giant building. It's probably about the size of this whole little block of shops and stores here. And um, you don't get any rights when you go to jail. In fact, when you go to jail, all your rights are taken. So you don't have the right to food. You don't have the right to a bed. You don't have the right to a sleeping mat. You don't have the right to a bowl. You don't have the right to anything. You have nothing. The only way you get things is if people on the outside bring them to you. So the prison doesn't give you uh, a bowl to put food in. The prison doesn't give you a straw mat to sleep on. They don't give you cups to drink out of. When you are locked up, you get whatever it is that the people outside want to give you. And so when we would go into these prisons, what we would do is we would take straw mats, we would take bowls, we would take spoons, and the prison would let us because they don't have the resources, nor do they give those things to the prisoners. Once you go to jail, you are forgotten. And a lot of these people were in jail, not for horribly heinous crimes, but because they stole a chicken literally to feed their family from someone else, and they're locked up, right? So it's not these grave, heinous things. I'm sure there were those. And there were a lot of these things were men that had done things they probably shouldn't have done to protect their families. And they go in jail, and they have nothing. And so the church comes in and says, we haven't forgotten you. You're loved and cared for. Here's a bowl so you don't have to eat out of your hands. Here's a straw mat so you don't have to sleep on the floor. Because there was an open air, big prison that had no roofs. You rained, you got wet. And what it reminded me of as I sat there was, 
how easy it would be for someone to be like, oh, yeah, they, they're, they're locked up and I can't wait till they get out. If the church didn't care for the needs of the people that were in prison, they had nothing. And I started thinking about this idea like, what if we cared for or loved or thought about the marginalized that way and didn't just say a prayer for people, but actually got involved in a way that said, I'm not going to forget you while you're there. It's really easy for us to just kind of out of sight, out of mind people. Did you hear so-and-so's struggling or they're sick or their family's sick or so-and-so lost, her, lost his wife? Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Let's pray for him. And there's nothing in the world wrong with praying for someone like that. But I think the church is called to something different, which is how would I grieve alongside that person? How do we truly take care of someone who's sick? How do we truly take care of a widow or someone that has lost someone deeply that they love? Is it a mere like, oh man, I feel so bad for them. I won't pray for them. How hard that must be. Or is it, would I want to go suffer alongside them? Just sit with them. The greatest tool I ever learned in seminary, which is not very many, but one of the greatest tools I ever learned was through all of our pastoral counseling classes. It was just the idea of the ministry of presence, which is you don't have to say anything. Just go sit with somebody. Like they don't always need you to tell them something. Sometimes when you suffer with someone, you just sit there. So we had these chaplaincies where we had to go, we call them COPs, where you go into the hospital and essentially you would just walk into rooms of people you didn't know and have to deal with their tragedy. You don't have anything to say. Like there's, you don't know anything about this person. It's super awkward at times. But sometimes the greatest thing in the universe is just sitting with someone by their bed and just sitting. Just sitting and suffering alongside somebody. And this is essentially what our author's saying here is he's saying, listen, don't forget those who are imprisoned, um, those who are your, act like you're their fellow prisoners, and don't forget those who are suffering. Like, love them as if you were suffering alongside of them. And it's not a pity thing at all. It's a we're in this together thing, and we love you thing. It's not a we want to do something for you because you can't do it. It's a we haven't forgotten you. Like, I know you guys have been sick or you've been struggling or it's been a hard time or you're, I know that you are going through a divorce or whatever life has handed you that's really difficult and unmanageable or seems unmanageable. Like, we're here with you. Like, we will love you on the outside. And it's also called to love those on the deepest fringes. It's why the church is called to adoption and fostering and things like that are so important. Because we're called to love differently than the world. We're called to fight for those on the margins and fringes we're called to remember them and suffer alongside them and care for them. We're called to walk alongside families. We have families in our own church. They're taking in foster kids or that are, are working and, and fighting for those on the fringes of, of, the, of culture, whether they're impoverished or single moms that are dealing with poverty and addiction. We have people that are deeply involved in those circles. Like We need to be a church that is engaged in supporting those people and are called to be like those people. It's really easy to just get encircled in this thing. And so the entire concept of chapter 13, or the first three verses in chapter 13 is, yes, love like family. But don't just live in family. Like, love like family. But love like family as you go out there, as you fight to not exist just within the context and maintenance and safety of the institution. Get outside of your home. Get outside of your four relationships, Right? Entertain strangers, people you don't know. Meet someone new. doesn't just have to be the guy that's cruising through town. Like meet your barista, your bank teller, your grocery store. Like meet people. Learn their name. Be kind. Right? Entertain people. Invite them into your circles. And don't forget those around you that are really easy to overlook. Those that are out of sight, out of mind. Those that are struggling or hurting or at home or dealing with uh, pain or loss or mourning. Don't forget those around you. Suffer with them, right? Serve with them. Like, consider that part of your calling. And, and I started thinking about the idea as we wrap this up is, what would it really look like if that was the church, right? Like, the church really lived that way as opposed to, like, what rock climbing wall are we going to put in for the kids next? Like, how have we lived differently in this engagement of community. I'm not saying you can't do both. I'm just saying, what if we thought really, really differently about why we're here? Like, why are you here? Is it because you think we're going to entertain you? There's a thousand better preachers, a thousand better musicians, a lot better facilities. We exist deeply to be sent out there. 
And as a community, we want to love each other in that way, as family, out there, not forgetting those that we don't know, and thinking differently about how we walk alongside those that are hurting, those that are suffering, and those that are on the margins, right? That we're going to love as family, we're going to cultivate and practice biblical hospitality, and we are not going to forget to entertain those strangers. And in the middle of all of that, as all that's wrapping up, we're also going to be thinking deeply, right, about loving the marginalized. It's not just about you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. For getting us back into the book of Hebrews, which I love so deeply. It's just such a rich and deep book. And for three short verses, there's a whole lot there, probably a framework that has launched a thousand books on what the church should be and should do. In fact, a lot of the reason we planted the church was built on this idea of Hebrews 13, which is this is a different picture of what church could look like or community looks like or how we're called to live and engage. I'd love to say we've mastered these things. We've knocked them all out, but we haven't, but we want to. We want to be a church that is deeply driven by our love for Christ first, each other second, first and foremost. We would follow you, literally follow Jesus, right? to the strangers, to the marginalized, to the recesses, to the places where we don't always think about going. Remind us as followers of Christ that everything we have is just because of you, that our homes and our life and our resources, they're yours. They're yours. I get to give them away. It's the beauty of stewardship. You have given us free reign to give away the things that you have given us. And so, Lord, let us practice and cultivate hospitality. Let us open our homes and our lives. Let us not be afraid and live in fear, but live with just this deep passion to see other people know Jesus. Let us love like you loved, sacrificially and with intention. And Lord, don't let us forget those that are marginalized, those that are on the side, those that are suffering, those that may be in prison, or whatever that looks like. Those that are easy to forget. Lord, let us suffer alongside people. Let us sit with people as they mourn. Let us celebrate with people as they celebrate. But let us be a church that loves like family. Lord, as we close our time in worship, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted, that we would celebrate who you are and your great love for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
Jesus, a name above every other name. Jesus, the only one you could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever challenge is that we empowered to hear God's word and actually want to allow it to impact and change our lives. That as a church, we would hear these words that were spoken some 2,000 years ago as a call for the community of Christ to say, we want to live like that. We want to be that. We want that to be our hallmark, that we would love his family, we would practice and cultivate biblical hospitality, and that we would be about loving the marginalized. Let those things soak into our DNA and change who we are. Go in peace.